Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 1, 1 through 6 and 16, and Joshua 2, 1 through 4. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now you know why we have scripture readers (laughs) with uh, passages such as that. Uh, Deeply appreciative. Uh, All right. Good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. As, As Bruce said earlier in the service... We are starting a new series today on Advent. And yes, I know it's November 7th. Yes, I know we are about three Sundays too early because traditionally Advent is celebrated uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. But let me tell you why we're doing this. Because, and, and again, Bruce brought this up, Advent means arrival, it means coming, it means expectation. And in ancient cultures, this wasn't just done right before Christmas. Advent was any time of waiting that would happen when a town or a place was expecting a king or a dignitary or somebody that was special because you didn't ever quite know exactly the date. The town would wait with expectation. Is today the day? Is, is, is this individual coming? What's it going to be like? What, what, what will happen? And there was always a buzz in the space as there was a lot of reflection and meditation on what it would be like. And therefore, Advent just literally means a time before to wait on the coming king. And, then, and, and if you can do that any time in the ancient time, what I would like us to do is to do that now. Is to start thinking about and waiting on, even though it's three weeks early, with expectation, what would it be like for the coming king to be here? What will his rule be like? What is it like as we wait 
And so will you, please, for the next couple of weeks, let's sit here with anticipation, with, with, uh, with expectancy, eager to see, to know, and to experience who this coming king is. And what I think will be great if we do that is uh, we do that looking at these few verses from Matthew chapter 1. Now, why these particular few lines? All Gospels, all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all trying to tell you who Jesus is. But Matthew doesn't start with, uh, you know, once upon a time in a faraway land, there was this Jesus. He doesn't start that way because that's how you would start like a legend or a myth or a good story. Instead, Matthew has a gospel, good news. What he's trying to do is give us reportage. He's going to show us the historicity of Jesus. And therefore, he gives us a genealogy. Look at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. In Greek, the word genealogy is the Greek word genesis, which means this is the beginning. This is the essence of who Jesus is. Now, for you and I, a lot of folks just read this in a boring list of names, and we just, well, how is this helpful? But for the original listeners, this was a, a very, very incredibly important moment. Because today, we all understand resumes, right? When you write a resume, you put all of who you are on that resume. You put all of your qualifications, you put your nature, you put where you've been uh, on that resume. This genealogy. All genealogies were ancient versions of resumes. Less important was what you did, and more important was who you were connected to. More important was your lineage. It was your family. This was Jesus's DNA makeup, in a sense, his, his calling card. And uh, this, this, this isn't just with uh, here. This, you see genealogies in the Old Testament. In fact, Genesis is a book of genealogies and lists. Uh, but Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian. He began his autobiography with a genealogy. King Herod the Great, which is at, who shows up in our Gospels, he was uh, so keen on getting rid of genealogies because he was actually only half Jewish. And so during his time, he destroyed all the geneal- genealogical records because he didn't want people to know that. Now, interestingly, ancient genealogies only contain lists of men. And the reason why is because it wasn't just who you're connected to. It was the way how you knew how property would come to you. It was how all inheritance came uh, through the line of men. Because women, women did not, could not inherit uh, property. They had no legal rights. They had no vote of testimony in a court of law. And, and so, yet, if that's the case, if that's why all genealogies only had men, the fact that in our genealogy of Jesus here, no less than five women show up. It is uh, astounding. They shouldn't be here. It doesn't make sense. Maybe you could make an argument to have sort of the matriarchs of Israel, right? Rebecca, Leah, uh, Rachel, Sarah, because they birthed Israel. But what Jesus puts in here, this is, he picks scandal after scandal after scandal. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Mary. We need to find out over the next couple of weeks why they're in here. And what we can learn about Jesus from it. So today, we're going to start with Rahab. And from Rahab, we get three lessons. A lesson about faith, community, vulnerability. Let's look at those three lessons about faith, community, vulnerability. First, a lesson about faith. But before we get there, I need to give you a quick recap of, 
of the story of Rahab. You can find this in, mostly in Joshua chapter 2. God's people have gotten out of, out of Exodus. They've been taken out, saved by Jesus, res, sorry, saved by God, rescued by God. They go out and they start worshiping almost immediately golden calves. They start messing around in, 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 the, in the wrong things. And so that first generation, as they're wandering around in uh, the desert, they die off. Moses dies off as well. And so now this is the second generation. And Joshua now is in charge. And they're supposed to go to the promised land. And they had a small, teensy-weensy little problem. And that's the, that the promised land was filled with the Canaanites, a very mean, ruthless, evil people. And the center of their culture was Jericho, which uh, is what you see in Joshua chapter 2. So uh, Joshua sends in spies to scout out what's going on there. And they show up and they go to Rahab's house. And they, and, and they do this for two reasons. One, her house is built into the city wall. She was on the very outskirts and it was easy to kind of get in and out through their, her window. But secondly, as a prostitute, she, that space was known to have travelers always trying to cover up their identities. And so it made a lot of sense to, to use her space so they could try to hide from being discovered. Now, of course, they didn't do a good job at that. They get discovered almost immediately. And uh, the king of Jericho finds out. He calls on Rahab and says, Where's, where are the spies? And to the surprise of everybody, she goes, Oh, they were here, but now they're over there. Look, I think I can see them. They're running the distance. You should go over there. And as the king's men fly out and they go after uh, you know, where she says they are, that she sneaks them up to her roof and hides them in the straw. And as she does so, she talks to them and says, listen, it's interesting that everywhere you go, God seems to uh, be able to go before you. That God defeats the people that are always before you. You, there's a, you have one winning battle after another after another. And it leads her to, in verse 11, which I didn't put in your bulletin, she makes this profession of faith. She says, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And by putting her, her, her faith in this God as a confession, she makes them promise to save her when they come. She said, I want you to please spare my family and me. We'll join you. We'll leave and be part of your group. But please save us. And they do. They uh, make that promise. They make her tie a scarlet red rope in her window as a signal to be, for her home to be spared. And that's exactly what happens when they do finally come to Jericho. Now, <clears throat> What's the lesson about faith, you say? Well, an easy definition of faith for all the, for, if you want a de- definition, faith, simply put, is just trust. It's trust where you put the surety of who you are into someone or something else. And so when Rahab, as a pagan Canaanite prostitute, when she says the Lord your God is God in heaven above and the Lord, and, and uh, God, so he's, <laughs> sorry, the heaven above and the earth below the story moves on quick after that. And I think that's sort of the point. It's because for Rahab, she has very little evidence to go on about who God really is. She knows God is big, God conquers, God is to be feared. And yet she says that phrase leading up, if you go to Joshua chapter 2, she says that phrase leading up to her profession, she actually knew very little about him. And yet she's still able to confess him as Lord and to trust him. And even more interesting, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, when you, they, when you look at the great people of faith, Rahab shows up there. And so try to piece all this together. 
Rahab didn't know all the aspects of God. Rahab didn't know about the Trinity. She didn't actually know how God's sovereignty and human responsibility interact and work. She had very little to go on, a very small amount of faith, precarious faith at best, and it wasn't just enough. Her name is now inside the genealogy of Jesus. And so what does that mean for us today? It means this. How shaky is your faith today? Where are you not fully able to uh, trust? Where do you go back and forth? Where do you have an incomplete knowledge of him? Because if this Canaanite pagan woman prostitute, I call that the quadruple whammy, right? Canaanite pagan woman prostitute, the outsider of all outsiders, if her faith wasn't just sufficient, if it was exemplary, then the hope for you and me, the lesson on faith here is actually astounding. Because what this means then, less important is the amount of faith that you have here this morning. More important is the object of your faith. Strong faith in a weak object will always kill you. You can have strong faith in a weak object and you're going to die. You know why? If, you're, if you see a, a rotted out hollow tree on a limb, wait, limb on a tree, <laughs> thank you. If you see a hollowed out tree limb and you're like, you know what, I am positive that thing is going to hold me up. I am so sure. You can have all the faith in the world. You walk out on that tree limb, you're dead. And yet, if you have strong, sorry, if you have weak faith in a strong object, no matter how weak, no matter how small it is, that kind of faith is enough to hold you up, to be enough of a foundation. If it's God himself, no matter how weak your faith is, it's going to be strong enough. Now, today, if you're not a Christian, or maybe if you are a Christian, you need to know you're constantly putting your faith in things. Maybe it's not an ancient genealogy, but there's a modern genealogy. What's your resume? What's the things that you are saying, if I have that, it'll be enough, and you're hoping in? Rahab is showing us that no matter how small and lame your trust and faith might be in him, it will be enough, it could be enough to enshrine you in the Bible. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is it that we have the God of of heaven above and on the earth below, he's not sizing us up the way we size each other up, the way you size yourself up. He's not comparing and contrasting your faith to somebody else's faith. You know what it is? He's just excited that his daughter, Rahab, with the faith that she has, is trusting and loving him. How beautiful is that? So please, don't say, you know, you don't have enough faith. Look at Rahab. Don't say, you know, that your faith is incomplete. Of course it's going to be incomplete. If he's infinite and you're finite, there is no amount of your essence of who you are that's going to understand all of him. It's going to be incomplete. So ask yourself, where's your faith this morning? How much of it is in him? Don't delay. Don't wait. Rahab barely knew God, and it was enough to believe in him. What's keeping you and me away? Be comforted that, that you aren't asked to know everything about him, to be celebrated in the lineage of Jesus. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. 
It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. That's the first lesson we see here. Now, second lesson about community. It would not have been lost on Matthew's listeners that it's not just any individual who's trusting in God. It's not just any individual who's having faith. This is a pagan Canaanite prostitute woman, the outsider who is socially an outsider, sexually an outsider, racially an outsider, morally an outsider. And if genealogies are supposed to be the places where we list the, our pure pedigree, what business does Jesus have in including her here? If you need like a, 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 a Harry Potter um, analogy, if you want to put this in Harry Potter terms, why would a pure blood mix with a half-blood? That's what Jesus is doing here. And I think he's doing it to make a point. And his point is this. If I'm here to save people, and I want you to know who's outside my ability to save, the answer is, with Rahab, no one. There is nobody outside of that. This is where, if you want um, this sort of written out, Romans 3, where Paul shows up and says, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a beautiful, that sounds awful, but actually it's beautiful because it's a leveling term. If all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then what you and I do every single day, which is size each other up, who's in and who's out, doesn't matter if you're male or female, good or bad, rich or poor, all those distinctions that we use in life to discuss who's in and who's out, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't get to do that. It's already been, it's already been denoted. Galatians 6.14 helps again. Paul there says, I glory in the cross of Christ through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Let me try to make that as practical as possible. Christians who look down on others, Christians who are judgmental, I've heard people say, oh man, they're too, they're, they're, they're too Christian. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. They're not Christian enough because if they understood Christianity, their glory would not be in the world. It would not be in making these decisions of who's in and out. It would be in the cross. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our, that's our hope. To put it as differently as possible, the lesson found here about community is this. Every community not seasoned with the gospel will tend to demonize and someone or something else so that they can know who they are, their self-image against that. I think that's actually what we're watching in real time. If you want to make sense of what's going on culturally, in real time we're weaponizing our identities politically and culturally right now against each other. Where your identity can't exist with my identity, and so it's, it is a, you know, a zero-sum game. Someone's going to lose. Traditional cultures, the way they've done this always, traditional cultures would always look at, at prioritizing the family. And so they look down on single people who aren't married. They're, they're the outsider. They're the ones who are insufficient. Modern culture prioritizes what? The resume, ambition, drive, and whoever doesn't add up to that. They're considered the outsiders. Interestingly, both those two cultural apparatuses, those are contained systems. They look at the prostitute and say, they, they look down on her, 
because she's a product of either her own personal moral failure individually or a product of cultural, societal, systemic failure. Either way, she doesn't fit in those two systems. They look down on lepers. They look down on the poor. They look down on those who are not accomplished in their systems. And what Rahab, the lesson that she's trying to show us here is that we're supposed to resist that tendency. That is a human nature tendency. Jesus did not demonize her. He brought her in. He made her family. He made her part of his lineage because that's what grace does. Grace does not divide out. Grace lets people in. If we're going to be a community that is centered on who, the nature of Jesus and he puts her in his lineage, then we're not to be a place that pushes people out. Christians should be and could be. We have all the resources in this text to be famous for bringing people in from different views, from different moralities, from, from different politics. How dare we ever individually or corporately push anybody away? If no one is too far to be pushed away, look at Rahab, not even Rahab, then that, there's so much beauty here. If Rahab is in, you're in. I'm in. We're all in. No one is irredeemable. No one is a lost cause. Nobody is without hope. And if that's true, here's the fascinating thing about community. Everybody you meet, Jesus could be coming for right now. Christian community has the potential to be, therefore, more, a more solid community than any other community in the world. Because the reason for people to be in this community has nothing to do with what you've done. It's what he's done. Which means there's no adding in or, or pushing people out. It could be more solid than any other community out there. And yet, it could also be, at the same time, more porous. Porous as in uh, avenues to bring people in. Because we can, we can and should be including everybody the world rejects. So who are the Rahabs today of our culture? I'll let you figure out that question. But who, you can do it individual too. Where's the Rahab in you that you are hiding from the world, that you don't want people to see, the unwanted, the outcast, the outsider? He's brought you in. And if he's done that to you, he's doing it for others. A community of grace with Jesus at the center is going to center Rahab's. It's going to center others. That's the, that's the lesson we see here. Now, last lesson about vulnerability. Rahab was vulnerable. Rahab allowed the spies in. She put, uh, put the cord in her window. She har- harbored the enemy. She p- made herself vulnerable. At any given moment, she could have been discovered the pe- by her own people or the, the promises that she made with the spies, they might not have fulfilled her and come through for her. Because to be vulnerable, if you want a definition of this, but to be vulnerable is basically just risking your life. It's risking rejection and attack. And she does just that. She risks everything. Because by not being a Jew and yet identifying with them, she eventually loses all her friends. She loses her way of life. She loses her economic engine. She, she has to change her whole lifestyle. She has to change her whole identity. She ends up going and living in future chapters. She, you see her living with them later. That makes her vulnerable. And so we have to ask, why would she do that? And then once we ask that, we can ask this about ourselves. Why would anybody make ourselves vulnerable? And the answer is because it's worth it. C.S. Lewis puts it better than I can. He says, listen, if you want to make sure you never get hurt, 
to be invulnerable, take your heart, put it in a box, lock it up, throw the key away. If you do that, it'll be safe. Nobody can touch it. But in that safety, with nobody touching your heart, it will shrivel and die without any contact. But if you take that heart out, if you let people interact with your heart, if you let people experience your heart, it can hurt. You can get hurt, and it will often. You, but it's worth the risk because the reward of the relationship is worth it. Now, I know a lot of you here are saying, I'm not so sure about that. Some of you have been hurt deeply. You've put yourself out there. And so you have to ask, why did Rahab think it was worth the risk to put herself in relationship with the Lord? Why would somebody who knew probably, by the way, because of her, her, her office as a prostitute, she probably had been abused before and been hurt before and been taken advantage of, why would she think it's worth it now? And by the way, we're not, we're not told a ton why, but I think there's some hints here. The first one is this. I don't have a map of, of the promised land, but bef- this is what you need to know. When the people of God were on the outskirts, they were down in Edom. They actually didn't, if you look at the map, they didn't have to make a beeline for Jericho. They could have probably gone somewhere differently in, in the promised land. They could have been, lived happily ever after and settled somewhere else and not have gone after this, this fortress biggest, baddest fortress in all the land. I'm sure the people of God said, why are we going that way? Why don't we go that way? Let's, let's, this, this is not the easier route. Look at, have you seen those walls? Have you seen the, these, this people group? And so there's sort of a, a question inside the whole narrative is, is, why would God come this direction and ask his people to go, that, to go there? That's, first, that's the kind of first little hint we have. Second hint, and commentaries point this out, it doesn't look like it went right. It looks, everything looked like it was not going so great. That the plan, look, look in, our, in our, our text. In verse 1, Joshua sends in two spies. And then in the next verse, the king finds out about them. These were not very good spies, were they? It's in one verse you get caught. You did something wrong. And yet, and, and by, they're here. Why is this story here? So the spies are supposed to go undetected. They got detected. They were blundering fools. And by the way, if you f- continue on with the chapter, that what they report is not that strategic. They go, they say, hey, Joshua, they're kind of afraid of us. There's nothing strategic about that. And then uh, a third kind of hint, commentaries have pointed this out. Joshua 2 doesn't really make sense. In that you could go from Joshua 1 to Joshua 3, take out Joshua 2, and everything would have flowed just fine narratively. Why does this need to be here? Why would God put the resources and time and money to go after Jericho? Why would he uh, use a flawed system with these spies who are blundering fools? And why, even narratively, why would it be put here? And the only reason that makes sense to me, that... That I, that I see, the only reason why God would make a detour, the God of heaven above and earth below, is because he wants to save Rahab. That the only possibility here, is it possible that history couldn't move on for God until he came after this one lost soul? That it was worth her complete, incomplete, weak faith simply because he set his heart on her that the resources and the time and the energy, it was a lavish amount for him to spend for her. What a 
grace-filled God we have, if that's the case, because that, that, that seems to be the only explanation for why it's here in our text. Perhaps, perhaps Rahab knew, right? She knew God was powerful. She knew God was in charge and strong. But she didn't know when she had, when she had this trust in him that he would actually save her, Right? He did not, she did not know if that was actually going to happen because she still had to wonder every day, is today the day that I die? Is today the day that they don't come through? If you're scared right now of being vulnerable, it's because at the end of the day, we're not sure the one who we're vulnerable to is going to come through for us. But it would be worth it to be vulnerable to somebody who we knew would come through for us. If you've been hurt, if you're like, I'm tired, I don't want to restart doing community again, I don't have to go through all the, opening my heart up to other people again after a pandemic, remembering that the God of the universe risked it all to love you would allow you to start being vulnerable again. That he moved heaven and earth for you. See, Rahab didn't have the full view, but we do. Rahab risked her life. She made herself partially vulnerable because she thought it was worth it, But Jesus Christ didn't just risk his life to let you into the city of God. It cost him his life. Knowing that he did that for us, knowing that he was vulnerable unto death for us, pushing us out of harm's way from the oncoming bus of death, rightly deserved, I now want him in my life, knowing that he was willing to go through heaven and earth to get me. I want to now be vulnerable back to him. True story that... When I became a Christian later in life, I became a, a Christian in college, I still remember it clear as day that the impact that everything bad that I'd ever done, everything that, that, I, that I'd ever thought or, un, or should have thought and didn't think, that that had been paid for, that it, that it had been made amends of, that it was not cheap. This was at great cost to God that it costed him his own life. But through death, he loved me. That gave me so much freedom from my shame, from that sin, I remember, I remember picking up my dorm room phone and calling my parents and saying, Mom, Dad, I want to tell you everything I've ever done in my life. And they were like, we don't want to know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 I, I want to tell you. And the reason why I felt that freedom is any shame that could have come from them, any harsh word that they could have given me, any distancing that could have come from that product couldn't keep me away from his love. And so it, I was completely free to be able to be vulnerable to other people because I knew I was fully and utterly accepted. If he accepts Rahab's, he accepts you. And so if you have trust issues this morning, if you're afraid to be vulnerable with him because you're not sure he's gonna give you what you want and what you need, right? We, everybody in this room, we have plans and desires. We have wants and needs economically, sexually, racially. I promise you, he doesn't ask you to give anything up that he won't fulfill better than what you can imagine. I promise you that. That Jesus associates himself with Rahab, he puts her in his resume. That means you can trust him because he's put you into his resume too. All you have to do is just trust him back. You don't have to know everything And guess what? You can't know everything. But you can know this, that your vulnerability, whatever he's asking from you, it pales in comparison 
to how vulnerable he already made himself to you. Let me go one step further. Every day now, you have an option, you have a choice to be vulnerable with one another, with each other. And the question of, that maybe is not conscious in your mind, but the question you're really asking at every interaction with everyone around you is, is it worth it? Do, should I really put my time into this person, into this experience, into this relationship? And if you're not a Christian, you know what, to be fair, I think it's a harder question because you have no assurance that you're not going to get hurt. Christians, though, we have every assurance probably that you will get hurt, but even if you're rejected and hurt by others, we know we'll never be ultimately rejected by him. And that allows us to go further and deeper in. If you have been hurt and your relationships have been thinned, and we know they have been throughout the pandemic, we need this. That Christ was so proud of you, he literally gave you his name. Christian, Christian. You get to hold on to that name. No matter what you've done, no matter what you will do or have done, you get to hold on to that. And Christians have messed up in America. We have a lot of lamenting and repenting to do. But with this statement across us, we can continue to put ourselves out there, risk being vulnerable, extend the care, love others. And if Jesus included people who the world wouldn't include, the oppressed and the marginalized, then we too can affirm the immense values that other people have in God's eyes. Your neighbor, your coworker. So please ask, who aren't we praying for right now that we probably should be? Who are the Rahabs around you in your life that God is gunning for, that he's lavishly wanting to, 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 to save and to love? Is it, maybe it's you. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody in your family that you think would just, he couldn't possibly go after. But nobody is too far away. And Rahab is proof that no one is outside the limits of God's love. You aren't outside the limits of God's love. And the death and resurrection of Jesus proves that you matter. This is how I'm going to end. Um, if you ask my kids who's their father's favorite Harry Potter character, they'll tell you it's, it's Neville. It's always been Neville. Through seven books, Neville's the klutz, Neville's the outsider, he's the nerd, he's the awkward, uncool kid that had a terrible life. No mother and father home to to raise him. His grandmother dodes on him and everybody laughs at him. He's always proximity to the famous, to Harry Potter. He runs in the same circles, but he's always the afterthought. He's the one that nobody thought could contribute And yet at the very end, beyond all hope, he gets the sword to slay the serpent. He gets to have the honor to get the glory because, friends, that's the gospel, that the most inconsequential outsider gets the glory. It's the Rahabs. It's the the Nevilles because we have a God who comes after the weak and needy and incomplete and puts him at the center of his name because he loves us that well. If you today are feeling unsure of his love. Push yourself into this. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom. And that's what Christmas is about, friends. Advent is waiting with expectation. Will you wait with me? Let's start early. We can start all day. We can start all year just be waiting with expectation. Whatever the the, the, the amount of faith that you have right now, he was vulnerable as a baby. 
for you and so that you can trust him. Let that love drill so deep down into your identity. Let that be at the center of your life that whatever the world is trying to tell you who you are, whatever your own negative self-esteem, uh, perception of yourself, whatever that's saying, they pale in comparison to the whispers of what God wants to tell you, which is this, I love you, you're mine, you are worth it, I will always be there for you, I am united to you, and love beyond measure. Will we trust him with our lives? Will we live out these lessons of faith and community and vulnerability? He won't betray our trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this genealogy. I know that sounds weird. I know we always just pass over these things, but I pray that we will go and do deep dives in each one of these names because they reflect your name. They give us a sense of your true nature, of who you are and what you want to say to us. To tell us about your character and love. I pray, Father, that we would let this move into our lives. A lot of us are hurt today. We've been, we've, we've been used and abused. We've, we've put ourselves out there and, we, and every time our heart is, is open, it gets squashed. I pray that with the amount of love that comes from you and the vulnerability that you've given to us, we can put ourselves out there again and again and again to love and serve, to meet and, and, and deepen our thinned relationships that have happened in the pandemic. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.